Thank you, Andrew and Catherine, for sharing that song with us. Thank you for coming again tonight. And uh, we're going to be continuing tonight in our series through the book of James. Through the book of James. So I invite you to turn there with me. And uh, let's, uh, let's pray together again as we begin. Father, you are good, gracious, kind. You, Lord Jesus, reign above all. And Lord, I pray now as we look to your word, you would minister to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit through uh, these words which are, were inspired, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would impress the truths upon our hearts, write them. Lord, upon our hearts, Lord, to to view ourselves rightly, Lord, in the view of who you are, what you have done, and what you're going to do. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Tim Dowley, um, who wrote the textbook we used in my church history class called the history of christianity he makes this comment about the life of jesus he says it is a curious quirk of history that while jesus himself seems never to have had a proper education was not formally trained or ordained never held any rank or high office or earned much money probably never walked further than a hundred miles from his home during a brief period uh, of wandering and preaching, and finally suffered a humiliating execution at a relatively young age, yet arguably his brief life, ministry, death, and its consequences have had greater effect on human history than anyone else. And that's true. Not many... 33-year-old, obscure, Middle Middle Eastern men have changed the world. But Jesus Christ did. And what that is, is it's a testimony to the way that God works, which is contrary to the way that we typically understand the world to work. Sometimes we say things like, oh, well, if so-and-so, some famous or important person, oh, if they would just get saved, the Lord could really use them. The Lord can really use you. In fact, the Lord has a history of using people that nobody knows. And so, in other words, Christianity often turns the way that we uh, understand things upside down. And that's no different. That's what we're going to talk about in this uh, brief passage from James tonight. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? just going to read a couple verses tonight. James chapter 1, beginning in verse... 9. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The word of God, you may be seated. So we're going to see three things from our passage today. Very simple. 
and the three things that kind of form a sentence. Number one, the low are exalted in Christ, and two, the high are humbled in Christ. Number three, because the world is passing away. The low are exalted in Christ, and the high are humbled in Christ because the world is passing away. So first, the low are exalted in Christ. Now first, when we look at this passage here, like the rest of the book of James, really, it's hard to understand exactly James's flow of thought. Okay, what's the connection? Because we talked about counting it joy and suffering and what suffering produces in us. And then he talks about wisdom and about how we should ask for wisdom in faith and not be double-minded or double-souled or double-hearted before the Lord. And then he goes on uh, in our text tonight to talk about how the lowly should boast in their exaltation and the rich in their humiliation. It's not uh, completely clear how everything ties together, but some commentators suggest that in view of what seems to be uh, James talking about trials, because uh, in verse 2 he talks about trials, and then in the next verse after this passage, verse 12, he talks about trials again. And so maybe this section is is uh, somewhat loosely related to the concept of trials, and some commentators have suggested uh, that uh, the connection here is that one of the great, some of the greatest examples of trials that we'll face in this life is the trials of either poverty or riches. Uh, the trials of either poverty or riches. Now, first, we're going to talk about uh, poverty. The word there, um, my translation says the lowly brother. Some translations say poor. Um, it, it almost certainly means financially poor because it's contrasted with the word rich uh, in the following verse. But at the same time, the word itself doesn't necessarily always have to mean poor. It can mean just lowly uh, in, in stature, in social standing. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is associated with the words orphan and widow, someone who is a low position in society, an outcast, someone who has little, little social capital, does not get to enjoy the, the, the privileges that others uh, get to enjoy. It's a, a, a lowly person, if you will. And it's readily apparent to us how, how that, how being a lowly person in the eyes of the world can be a, can be a trial. That's, that's readily apparent to us. When you don't have, you know, some people in this world today, many people don't have access to their most, to the most basic needs of life. Every day they wake up, you know, wondering, where am I, what am I going to eat today? Where am I going to sleep today? And some people in this, in, uh, who knows, in our very town tonight may lay down without a roof over their heads and with, and with a hungry uh, stomach. And, and so struggling in this way can be a great trial um, and in fact, many people use uh, this, uh, you know, world poverty or something like that, as an example of why they don't of why they don't uh, believe in uh, God. Uh, but and 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 you know, we, and when strag- when tragedy strikes like this, oftentimes some people, uh, you know, again they use it as a reason to turn away from God. Maybe they're they're struggling. Maybe they lose their job. Maybe they. Uh, Maybe the stock market crashes or their business crumbles and they lose their retirement. It happens, right? Or maybe it's not just poverty or maybe it's it's someone who's just a social outcast, a a nobody in societal terms. And they wonder why 
why they don't enjoy some of the privileges that other people uh, do. And so it's clear to see how this is a trial for us. It's clear to see how this is a trial for us. And especially in view of the sermon a, a couple weeks ago about accounted all joy in our various trials, it's a testing of our faith. When we're, when we're in this kind of position in life, which many Christians and perhaps most Christians have in the history of the world, and in most of Christian history, or in a large part of Christian history, especially early Christian history, being a Christian was not a, did not give you social capital, right? It, 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 it took away social capital. It was, a, it was a, a means of your persecution, right? And so, and so uh, we have to have a way to understand, we have to have a way to, under, uh, to understand this. It, it, it tests our faith. It tests whether we believe that God is good in the midst of our difficult circumstances, whether God is faithful in working in the midst of our difficult circumstances. And what James is doing is he's trying to, he's trying to help us. He's trying to help the dispersed Jews that he's writing to, the ones who may consider themselves lowly in stature in this world. And the way that he's trying to help us is he tells the person, he says, look, if this is your stature in life, you know, and you and you and it seems that you are on the the bottom end of the things, the lowest the lowest rung of the ladder, if you will. He says, "Don't let it overly bother you. Don't let it overly concern you. In fact, you shall boast. You should boast in your exaltation. You should boast in your exaltation." What is James getting at? He is saying that the reality of God changes our perception of the world. The reality of God gives us a different lens through which to categorize value, things that are the value and worth of things, right? It gives you a different lens. It gives you a different scale, if you will, by which to weigh the relative weight and value of things. If this world is all that we have, and if our earthly comforts and, and how comfortable our life is in this earth is all that there is, then of course you're going to put great weight and you're going to place a great deal of value on those things. And therefore, when your circumstances do not line up to that, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to feel cheated. You're going to feel like you're not getting what you deserve. You're going to be upset about it. It's going to bother you. But what James is saying is, look, Jesus Christ changes things. God changes things. It changes the way we look at things. You might consider that you have a lowly status in life, but in God, in Jesus Christ, the opposite is true. Whether you perceive it to be or not, the opposite is true. God, God in Christ has flipped the worldly order of things so that in Jesus Christ, things that are low are... In, in reality, high, those things that are high are in reality low. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to, cha- to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us 
wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now, this is ironic if you think about it. Paul is, ta- Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, <laughs> and he says, he says, uh, God has turned over the earthly order of things, the earthly way of thinking about things. And let me give you an example of how you know that's true. Look around the room. (laughs) How many great ones are there? How many great ones among you are there? Not many. What does that mean about God? That means God could care less whether you're great in the eyes of the world or not. He could really care less. Doesn't matter whether you're, you're president, prime minister, CEO, of your school. You know, all the things that people clamor and clamor and clamor for in this world, God says, look around the room. And not only that, but he says it's not just an accident. He says God did it on purpose. On purpose. God chooses those who are of the lowly stature on the earth to precisely show those who are proud on the earth, to precisely show them you're proud. And guess what? The, thing, the very things that you're proud on, you're proud about, I don't care about. It's worthless. It humbles the proud. It exalts the lowly. God chooses to upend the earthly way of looking at things. So that why? He says so that no human being might boast in his presence. And, that, and then at the end it says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Everyone who is in heaven, every single person who attains that age, the age of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, no one will be able to say, look how good I was. The only people who get in are the people who say, I was worthless, but Jesus Christ was everything to me. It humbles us. God is in the work of humbling us. In the... the, passage uh, just before this uh, in in the same chapter verses 23 and 24 Paul says we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God so again he's, he's building up to this whole point of how he's saying that God is doing this on purpose God chose to save the world by a crucified man. <laughs> a crucified man. You told a Roman that God was saving the world by a crucified man, they'd, they'd be a joke. It's a criminal. It's not just a criminal. It's reserved for the worst of criminals. It was reserved for people who, who weren't Roman citizens who committed crimes. And they're just a criminal. But you tell the you tell the Jew that the, the God that the God saved the world through a crucified man. That's even more offensive to a Jew. Why? Because being hanged on a tree was to be cursed by God. So you're tell so for a Jew, <laughs> Jew, you're telling them that God saved the world through a cursed man. Yes. Because he became a curse for us. He bore the curse for us. It's And what Paul is saying is, look, God did it this way intentionally. It's so foolish that if you want to be saved, you have to become a fool for God. You have to be willing to stand for the foolishness of the gospel when everyone else in the world says you're a fool. You're a fool. You say, fine, I'm a fool, but I'm a fool for Jesus Christ. 
It's foolishness to the world. The Christianity upturns the world order of things on its head. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The point is this, is that a person who's in a low stature of life, you need not, you need not take it to heart and count yourself uh, and, and, and fall into a, a party of self-pity because regardless of your stature in life, if you have Jesus Christ, you're rich. You are a king. You will be dressed in white robes and a golden crown will be placed on your head. That is, some of the greatest people in the coming kingdom of God will be those who were nobodies on earth. That's reality. Think about it. (laughs) We know this for a fact because of Jesus Christ. Jesus died penniless, homeless. Literally, the only thing he owned was the shirt on his back, and they gambled it away. There will be no person higher in the world to come than Jesus Christ, even though he was of no account on this earth. That's how God works. It's how we love and serve him. And the same is true um, in, 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 uh, for people of low stature, people who are victims of evil or oppression, or maybe someone has done a great wrong to you. And God says, and James says, let your lowly brother boast in his exaltation. God's going to deal with it. Someone wrongs you, you don't have to worry about it. Why? Because God's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it now. He's going to deal with it later. Eventually, he's going to deal with it. Romans uh, 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's amazing. It's miraculous. I don't have to deal with it because God will deal with it. What this means is that Jesus Christ, the the title of our sermon tonight, is that Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter of your stature in life. It doesn't matter of your social standing or your, your socioeconomic status because all that stuff doesn't matter to God. You don't want gold in heaven. The streets are made of gold. Who cares? What matters is where we stand with the Lord. So number one, the low are exalted in Christ. Number two, the high are humbled in Christ. The high are humbled in Christ. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And the rich in his humiliation. So it's easy to see how a low status in life may be a trial for somebody. But it it can be a little bit more difficult to see how having a high stature in life can be a trial. But if you're following closely, it should become fairly obvious why having a high stature in life can be a great trial. And the reason is quite simple. It's simply this. The higher standing you have in life, the far greater temptation you face to think you don't need God. 
Let me tell you something. It's a great trial. And hell will be full of people, full of kings and presidents and prime ministers and senators and, and, and representatives and, uh, and rulers and generals and captains who thought they didn't need God. You see, there's, real, there's no difference between a person of high social standing in the world and a person of low social standing. We both equally need God. But there is a difference. The person of low social standing, generally speaking, it can see their need for God more. Where a person of high social standing is harder to see. It's easier to be self-sufficient, to rely on yourself, to rely on your bank accounts, to rely on your retirement policies, to rely on your insurance plans, and not on God. It's dangerous. It's not that we don't need God less. It's that we don't perceive our need of God as much. And so it's dangerous. And the Bible speaks about this over and over again. <laughs> we, can't, we can't hear this warning enough. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19, 23, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's astounding. It's practically, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And in case we wonder if that's what Jesus really meant, the disciples, when they say that, when Jesus said that, the disciples say, well, Jesus, who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? You remember? What does he say? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We've talked about that before. Sometimes we, we read that verse and we say, oh, well, you know, with God, all things are possible. I can win a football game. But that verse actually has nothing to do with that. The context of the verse is that what Jesus is saying is that it is so hard for a wealthy person to get into heaven that it's a miracle that it happens. And, it's only, and it only happens because with God, all things are possible. That tells you how deceitful riches are, how deceitful wealth and comfort is. That it's only a miracle of God that it can happen. Do you remember what what? precipitated that teaching? Do you remember why Jesus turned and told his disciples that saying? It was immediately after something else happened. A rich young ruler had approached Jesus. And he said, what must I do to, to, to enter the kingdom of heaven to be saved? He says, Jesus says, you know the commandments, keep the commandments. The young man said, I've, I've done them. I've kept all of them. And Jesus said, one thing you lacked, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and come and follow me. Do you see what Jesus did? He pressed him on the nerve. He pressed him on the nerve. He made him choose. He made him, he made the, the young ruler search the very depths of his heart, and at the root of his heart, ask him, he made him ask himself this question: Is Jesus worth more to me than my stuff? And you know what he did? He walked away. He walked away. He walked away from Jesus and back to his stuff. It's insidious. It's dangerous. It's real. It's real. The love of money, the love of 
comfort and security and pleasure in this world. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It happens all the time. I talk to people all the time. You know, they just think, if I just have a little more, I would be happy. If I just have a little more, I'd be less stressed. If I just have a little more, then, you know, everything would be all right. But what are you doing when you say that? You are saying that money is going to make you happy. And when you are looking to money for happiness, guess who you're not looking to? To God. What are you doing? You're serving money. Money is your master. You're serving it to bring you full and happiness. And God is right here saying, come to me. And I will give you life. Abundant life. Only God can give us true and lasting happiness. They, they, they get this. That is not dependent on your circumstances. Right? If you trust in money, let's say you get it. And you get a little bit of money, now you become happy. Well, first of all, you won't be satisfied with it. You always want more. And the second thing is this. Guess what? If your, your happiness is in your, your, your worldly status in life, that's where your happiness is. Guess what? When that's gone, you're going to be miserable. It's rooted in something that can be taken away. And guess what? Even if you die a billionaire, guess what? When you stand before God, you're going to be penniless. You can't take a dime with you. When we stand before God, you do not bring your bank account statements with you. It will be left behind to some snobby little kid or Uncle Sam who didn't work for it. You don't take it with you. Right? If your hope is in God and not money, guess what? Nobody can take it away. And guess what? Regardless of if your circumstance change or not, guess what? You can be full of hope and joy and thanksgiving and gratitude and praise. Why? Because you have God. Nobody can take him away from you. It's a difference. A lot of miserable people out there are miserable because they love money. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the great irony, isn't it? The very thing that so many people think will make them happy, when they pursue it, it ruins them. It makes them miserable. They pierce themselves with many pangs by pursuing something for joy that cannot give it to them. But interestingly, what does Paul say? He said, godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. <laughs> What's that? It's wealth. You want, to be, you want to be wealthy? You want to be very, you want to have great gain? Be godly and be content. You have great gain. Be godly and be content, and you have great gain. Final story I'll mention here is a very famous one. You remember, it's the story of the widow's might in Luke 21. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow 
put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. You see, again, God, God looks at the heart. He upturns the worldly way of thinking. Humanly speaking, you see, you see two pennies put into a box and you say, what good's that going to do? It's two pennies. What, we think in terms of sheer pragmatism. How much do they give? What can, what, what can you do with that? What, what could the temple treasury do with that widow's two pennies? That's what we think. That's not how God thinks. God sees those two pennies going there and he's... He, and God feels like he's just been given a billion dollars. He evaluates it differently. It's not, see, it's not, it's not the, the amount doesn't matter to God. God already owns it all. He, he fed 5,000 people with a, with a couple of fish and a handful of loaves. He doesn't need your money. But when you give to him, the, the faith is what matters, not the amount. And the great faith to him is a great amount. The great faith of the widow was equivalent of her giving uh, billions and billions of dollars, if you will. It's the equivalent to God because he sees the heart. And so what's the point of all of this? The point is that Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. If you're of a lowly in status in life... We need not be over-concerned with it. Why? Because you are exalted in Jesus Christ. If you are a high position in life, you better not be proud and arrogant and look down on other people from your high position. Why? Because all of the, everything that you count as a high position in life doesn't matter to God. Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. It lifts up the low. It humbles the proud so that we all, regardless of earthly status, can stand hand in hand by and believers of Jesus Christ. He levels the playing field. The low are exalted in Christ. The high are humbled in Christ. Number three, because the world is passing away. Because the world is passing away. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The reason why the, uh, the low brother can boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation is because the things that we take so much stock on in this world are passing away. Just a few chapters later, James will write this. Uh, 413. Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. You see what James is doing? 
James is actually very practical. He's trying to ground our feet in reality. We make plans. We say, I'm going to go over here and, and make money. But James is saying, look, if you, if you neglect the most ultimate reality, you're going to be a fool. And the most ultimate reality is this. You can make plans. That's fine. But guess what? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. So all, it happens all the time. All of us know people who have passed away unexpectedly. And how many times does it have to happen till we get the message that we're not guaranteed tomorrow? We think we do. We, we think we are, but we're not. And James is saying, learn wisdom from this. Learn wisdom from this. We cannot secure ourselves. Only God can make us secure. Therefore, to be truly wise, to, take, to truly take stock of, of things as they really are, or then we need to live in the fact of reality that this world is passing away. In Luke 12, Jesus told this parable. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in abundance in the abundance of his possessions and he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself what shall i do for i have nowhere to store my crops and he said i will do this i will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there i will store all my grains and my goods and i will say to my soul soul You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see what you see what he's saying? James is saying here that the reality of all the world is that it's passing away. It's passing away. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. How then shall we live? How then shall we live? Remember, Jesus said to store your treasure in heaven. Why? Because, because thieves can't break in and steal, and moths can't destroy, and rust and moths can't destroy. In other words... The reality of the fact that the world is passing away requires us to live and think differently about the world. If you store up and you you take all your stock in things of this world, you lose it forever. If you're rich toward God and put your treasure in heaven, you keep it forever. This world, James says, Paul says, is passing away. We'll conclude with this verse here 1st Timothy 6:17 Paul says as for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy they are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future get this so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
So see the difference. See what, what Paul is talking about here. There's a life that many are pursuing in this world that they think is truly life. You know, it's, it, you know, it's taught everywhere, you know. Follow your dreams. Be successful. Da, 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 da. You know, you know, and I'm not saying nothing's wrong with those things, but look. If you put all your stock in your earthly status and your worldly success, and that's where your ultimate hope is, the Bible says you're going to lose it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It will pass away. It will, you cannot take it with you. But there is another type of treasure that can be gained, another type of treasure that can be earned, that if you are rich toward God, if you're rich in good works, if you're generous and ready to share and you store up treasure in heaven, you are taking hold, Paul says, of that which is truly life. Think about, so think about how Paul is, is what he, Paul is saying here. Paul's not saying, he's not saying, Oh, just be, you know, make yourself miserable in this life by giving away tons of money so that you're miserable and that's the only way you can be saved. He's not saying be miserable. Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I want you to be as happy as you possibly can be forever by putting your stock in heaven, by being generous, by being rich in good works. It's not, that is where true life is, true happiness is true joy forever is in having hope in God, having hope in Jesus Christ beyond the things of this world because this world is passing away. All the things that God gives us to enjoy, they're not bad. We should thank God for them. The question is, where is our hope? What are we deriving our joy from, our security from our comfort from what are we trusting in what are we serving because what God and what Paul wants for us is that which is truly life and that's what I want for you as well and true life only comes through Jesus Christ knowing him believing in him trusting in him if you haven't done that, you can do that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> reality...